Okay. <clears throat> well, let me begin our time together by saying, as has become something of a tradition, that there is another Sunday school class uh, going on down the hall for adults, class on evangelism. I'm not trying to run anyone out of here necessarily, but that would be a profitable use of your time to get that training. Um, I want to make that known that's available to you. So last week, we considered uh, simply the fact that Jesus is fully a man. Not merely a man, but actually a man. Uh, we discussed how that could be, given the fact that he is also fully God. Always has been, will always be. The same yesterday, today, and forever. So what does it mean that such a one as this became a man? And we began to look at the hypostatic union. You remember that just means the union of two natures, fully divine, fully human, into one hypostasis or one person. Um, and a brief review of that is where your notes for this morning will begin. So just to reorient everyone to the discussion, remember at the incarnation, uh, the eternal son, God the son, assumed to himself a complete human nature. Everything that is material about a human, a body, and also everything that is immaterial about a human, uh, a soul, spirit, heart, or mind. Then he lived a genuinely human life according to that human nature. And we belabored the point to show that his taking to himself a complete human nature did not in any way change his divine nature. Uh, you think that great hymn, uh, Thou Changest not okay uh, the incarnation um, doesn't overturn that truth so we continue to possess um, and exercise his divine attributes through and according to his divine nature and we ended last week by reading the confession or creed formulated at the council of chalcedon and i'd like to begin this week by doing that <clears throat> so here it is uh, printed in your notes uh, and this, this has been the uh, definitive articulation of Orthodox Christology um, for the last 1,600 years. So is, is this scripture? No. But this is a faithful articulation, a faithful summary of what the scriptures teach. And uh, every generation of, of the church... Um, since this, this confession was formulated, uh, has agreed with that. So this is a very helpful uh, doctrinal statement, as it were, that has stood the test of time, much time. Here we go. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, Truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood. Like us in all respects, apart from sin, as regards the Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation, of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, 
Now, just as a, a quick side note, uh, that, uh, that title uh, that they ascribe to Mary here is not something designed to exalt Mary, but it's simply to affirm that the person that was born uh, actually was God the Son. The person born in Bethlehem in the manger was God the Son who became a man. Um, and then beginning now in the underlined section in your notes. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of the natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person in subsistence, which basically means person, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one in the same Son and only begotten, God the Word, Lord, Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him, and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the fathers handed down to us. So, doesn't that make you want to worship and sing, Fairest Lord Jesus, like we did uh, at the end of church? That was wonderful last week. Okay, so, so the two things that we must affirm uh, to keep our understanding of the person of Christ in balance is, on the one hand, the distinction of his natures human and divine, and, on the other side, the unity of Christ's person. Uh, these are the two pillars. Distinction of the natures, the unity of the person, these are the two pillars that uphold Orthodox Christology. So, uh, preserving the distinction of the natures of Christ. Um, as, as the Council of Chalcedon articulated that we read is that the distinction of the natures being in no way annulled, uh, that is, um, um, overturned by the union. Remember the two adjectives, that the natures come together without change or confusion, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved. So I think a helpful way to think through this is to consider the omni-attributes of God. So omni uh, comes from an adjective that means all or every. Uh, God is uh, omnipotent, omnipotent, all-powerful. God is uh, omniscient, omniscient, all-knowing. Uh, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere, fills all space. Uh, you, you could think of the doctrine of God's eternality is omni temporality. He fills all time. So these omni-attributes, as I'm referring to them here, um, consider God's infinity. Now, human beings are not omni-anything. Sometimes uh, I've heard Dan joke that, that Jason is omni-competent, okay? But apart from that, and that's probably hyperbole, probably, I don't know. Human beings are not omni-anything except omni-finite, okay? The finite cannot the contain the infinite, um, the reformers argued. So, um, the finite human nature of Christ, because it is genuinely a human nature, cannot express 
the infinite attributes of Christ's divine nature. So we'll walk through a few of these to demonstrate this. Uh, I go through this little thought exercise because I know how much it helped me. Some of you, maybe this is not necessarily uh, necessary. You've, you've already got this down, but just bear with the rest of us who process things more slowly. I include myself in that category. All right, we'll start with an easy one. Uh, eternality, or I'll, I'll call it omnitemporality. I think that actually some people somehow distinguish between eternality and omnitemporality, but we don't need to slice it that thin. Okay? Uh, I mean the same thing. So God the Son is fully God. He's omnitemporal. He, he fills all time. God the Son, according to his human nature, is not omnitemporal, right? He had a beginning. Uh, this is what we celebrate at Christmas. So according to his human nature, God the Son is finite with respect to time, even while he did not stop being eternal according to his divine nature. So is Christ simultaneously both eternal and not? Yes, according to his divine nature and human nature, respectively. All right, now we're getting warmed up. We'll ratchet it up a little more. God the Son, as fully God, is omnipresent. Uh, he is infinite with respect to space, fills all space. God the Son, according to his human nature, is not omnipresent. He is finite with respect to space, even while he did not stop being omnipresent. So is God the Son everywhere? in one sense, and only in one place, in another sense, at the same time? Yes, according to his divine nature and human nature, respectively. Remember that it's not the case that uh, the Son was fully God and then became fully man successively, but simultaneously is fully God when he became fully man. Um, so you think, wow, what, omnipresent and localized? There's mystery here, of course, but we must affirm it to be so. We must preserve these distinct, remember that's what we're talking about, the distinction of the natures. We must pr preserve the distinct natures. Um, here's a Calvin quote for you. We love these around here. He says this, here is something marvelous. The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way that... Without leaving heaven, he willed to be born in the virgin's womb, to go about the earth, and to hang upon the cross. Yet he continuously filled the world, even as he had done from the beginning. Um, omnipotence. God the Son is omnipotent. God the Son, according to his human nature, is not omnipotent. He, uh, he assumed to himself a complete human nature, which includes a human body which is necessarily limited in its physical capabilities. So according to his human nature, finite with respect to potency or, or power, and yet is still infinite in power as God. Like I said last week, he continued to uphold the world in the same way that he did before his incarnation. Uh, Mark Jones says this, uh, Jesus drank milk from his mother's breasts, and Jesus provided his mother with the milk to feed him. Finite in power, needy and dependent as a man, simultaneously as God, infinite in power, 
completely self-sufficient, needing nothing, all created reality depending on him. Okay, what about uh, the next one? Omniscience. So here's one with real, immediate, exegetical payoff. Why? Because Jesus says in the Gospels, if you remember this, no one knows the hour of the second coming. Not the angels. Then he says, not even the Son. How can Jesus be limited in knowledge and God at the same time? Okay, same exercise. Uh, as God, according to his divine nature, infinite in knowledge. But remember, part of a human nature is not just a body, but everything immaterial about a man. Uh, a soul, spirit, heart, mind. The, the scriptures use those words interchangeably to refer to uh, the inner man. So that's faculties of cognition, thinking, faculties of, of affection, feeling, desires, emotion, faculties of volition, willing. So Jesus assumed to himself a full set of man's inner faculties, human faculties for thinking as a man, for experiencing emotion and desire as a man, for willing as a man. So a human nature is necessarily limited in its cognitive faculties. So Jesus is God, knows all things, including the time of the second coming, never able to increase in understanding or learn something new because he already possesses infinite knowledge, and yet, the person of Christ, thinking as a man, learned things, increased in knowledge, using human faculties of knowing. During the incarnation, both omniscient and not, infinite and finite with respect to knowledge. So again, there's mystery here, uh, for sure, to know how this all works itself out. Uh, but hear me carefully, affirming mystery is not affirming in any way contradiction. The person of Christ has two distinct natures. Uh, but we must hold that truth, on the one hand, in a way that preserves our other pillar, the unity of the person. We can't so emphasize the, the distinction of Christ's natures uh, that we overturn this other important pillar. Um, it really is the person who is God the Son. It was born, lived, died, rose again, and will return as a man. Uh, maybe it will help to speak briefly about a simple way to understand what a nature is, what a person is. These are not terms in the Bible, but they're terms picked up by the early church and used ever since to help explain things that are in the Bible, like the Trinity, person and nature, same terminology, and here Christology person and nature. Okay? So you can think of it this way. Uh, a nature is just a group of attributes. And then a person is a being who, who bears those attributes, who possesses and exercises them. So the one person, Jesus Christ, bears divine attributes, and then also with the incarnation, human attributes according to these two distinct natures. Another way to say it, a person is an acting subject. Natures don't do anything. Persons do things through or in accordance with natures. So it would be wrong to say Christ's human nature died. Natures don't do anything. The person of Christ died through and according to his human nature. 
Likewise, Christ's divine nature didn't create all things. Christ created all things through and according to his human nature. Um, picking up our discussion earlier of omniscience, natures don't know things. Persons know things. Uh, they know things through capacities for knowledge that accord with the nature. So the main way that, that the unity of the person has been argued for throughout history um, is, is something the Reformers called the communication of attributes or, or operations. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, which I've printed this article on your handout, talks about that in the second half of this article. I'll just read uh, the whole thing. <clears throat> Christ, in the work of mediation, acts according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Yet, and here's how um, they affirm the unity of the person, one of the ways, by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. <coughs> Excuse me. So that just means that the Scriptures affirm the unity of the person of Christ in part by ascribing something true of him according to one of his natures to him, even as he's being spoken of according to the other. So, for example, and, and we t talked about this last week, Acts 20.28 um, it says, God obtained the church with his own blood. So God, in his divine nature, doesn't have a human body and blood. Nevertheless, God, it can be said, obtained the church with his own blood. Okay. Um, the attributes that are true of Christ according to his human nature, being ascribed to him even while he's being considered according to his divine nature, because the unity of the person. Similarly, John 8 um, Jesus, speaking as a man who has not existed forever as a man, said, before Abraham was, I am. And this is appropriate because he's one person. Um, the God-man, Christ the God-man, the theanthropic person, acts according to both natures. He's the subject of all actions. Okay. Uh, if you didn't get all of that, that's okay. Just affirm. Uh, two natures, distinct, united, inseparably in one person. Those four phrases in, in Chalcedon are so helpful. So helpful considering the, the two natures, um, they come together in such a way that's without change and without confusion, distinction of the natures, yet without division, without separation. One person. All right. So, uh, in this... This is helpful, too. We must distinguish between what we must not separate. You can, you can use that same line of thought with how the Bible talks about faith and works. We must distinguish faith and works, but we must never separate them as if you can have one without the other. Okay. Uh, so, um, with fear and trembling, are there any questions? I might punt. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Great question. If Christ was born 
without a sinful nature, how can he be holy, uh, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy? How can he be wholly human as we are? Great question, and I've got about a page of notes on that coming up, okay? So I punt, but not that far. Any other questions I, I cannot answer? Yeah. Okay, great. Um, next part, Christ's life as a man. Um, boy, I mean, this, this is amazing. Um, maybe you can think of this transition. We've talked about uh, mostly Christ's genuine humanity. And now, now we're pivoting a little bit to talk about Christ's genuinely human life, the life he lived through that humanity. Um, so in our, in our previous discussions, both um, <coughs> especially last week, talking about the incarnation, when God the Son assumed to himself a complete human nature, uh, I've placed the greatest emphasis on how Christ's divine nature did not change. Remember I said he emptied himself not by subtraction, strictly speaking, but by addition, by taking on a human nature. And this is true. But the most amazing thing about the incarnation is not that God the Son kept being God the Son. Right? Uh, it would be a shame to fail to recognize the incredible condescension that the incarnation was. When the Creator became part of his creation. God the Son's choice to live as a man meant that he voluntarily chose to live in a way that he did not, through his human nature, exercise or express his divine attributes. To live in a way that he did not receive the privileges and benefits that rightly belong to one who is God. And not only did he become a man, he became a man who lived as the servant of other men. Uh, Bruce Ware, commenting on Philippians 2, said this, Christ, being fully equal to God in every respect, did not insist on holding on to all of the privileges and benefits of his position of, of equality with God, and thereby refused to accept coming as a man. He did not clutch or grasp his place of equality with the Father. And all that this brought to him, in such a way that he would refuse the condescension and humiliation of the servant role he was being called to accept. Um, there's a beautiful verse in 2 Corinthians 8, talking about this reality. Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So, uh, as we affirmed before, um, while Jesus cannot be contained in one place, we must remember that he still did, in a true sense, leave his father. And he yearned to return to his father's side. Okay, so uh, beginning to look at, at his genuinely human life, the virgin conception. Boy, so much could be said about this miracle. We'll cover it only very briefly. December is almost upon us, so, so hopefully further reflection on this truth is in your near future. Uh, the virgin conception is, is the moment in time when God the Son took to himself a human nature. That's the point when God the Son became 
incarnate. Many have called this the greatest miracle God has ever done. Uh, When a member of the Godhead took to his person a created nature. And this grand miracle, as C.S. Lewis called it, happened in the womb of a young virgin. As the Spirit of God overshadowed her and powerfully worked inside of her. So from Mary, from one who is like us in every respect, Christ received his full humanity. Um, And then he lived a righteous life as a man. Uh, What was Jesus doing for the first 30 years of his life? Living righteously as a man. Loving God with his whole heart. Loving others as himself. In relative obscurity. As the son of a carpenter in backwoods Nazareth. Eating, sleeping, working, resting, all in perfect faith. Whatever he ate and drank, whatever he did was for the glory of God. Working heartily, not by way of eye service, as a people pleaser, but unto the Lord. So the righteousness of Christ that's credited to a believer is the righteous life he lived as a man. It's the exact kind of righteousness that you need as a man. The record of righteousness that's credited to those who believe in Jesus is the record of righteousness that he accrued living a genuinely human life. It can actually count for you. It is a righteousness lived through a human life. So he became a man to die a sinner's death as a man in your place, and he also became a man to live a righteous life as a man in your place. 1 Corinthians 1 says, He became for us righteousness. So he earned the declaration righteous by the way he lived as a man. He earned his perfectly pleasing to the Father status by the way he lived as a man. This righteous life lived by another can be yours. It can be credited to you because it was executed and secured by one just like you. Why would you go, why would you go to the judgment trusting in yourself That you are righteous. You can stand before God trusting in Jesus and receive the gift of the record of his righteousness credited to you, united to him by faith. Uh, That hymn, um, um, On Christ the Solid Rock, has it start? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. My hope is built on the righteousness of Jesus, his righteous human life. Uh, Here's getting to your question. Um, Like us, except... uh, My wife was talking to me after last week's Sunday school, and she said as, as I was emphasizing how Jesus became like us, he took on a complete humanity, she said uh, the refrain in her mind kept coming up, except sin. Except sin. And, and Hebrews makes that point. Um, in Hebrews 4, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Uh, so we should think carefully about this. How can it be said that Jesus is fully man if there is an exception to the way that he is like us? Is that your question stated differently? 
If he is like us, except, how then is he like us? How is he fully human? Okay, all men are sinners. Jesus had no sin. Do we need to put an asterisk or, or quotes around human when we say he was fully human because he never sinned? Uh, sometimes we think this way, unaware. There's an old adage, uh, when someone sins, people say, he's only human, right? Uh, or, or maybe, guys, you've had this experience, you're, you're witnessing to someone, and you're trying to show them that they're a sinner, uh, so you use God's law as they'll train you down the hall. You use God's law to point out their sin to them and their need for a Savior, and you say, well, have you ever committed adultery? They say no. You go where Jesus did in Matthew 5. Have you ever looked at a woman uh, with lust, with desire for her, even though she was not yours to desire? Uh, and the answer is, I, I'm a male. It's the same line of thought. Uh, I'm not perfect. I'm only human. As if being a sinner is essential for being human. So if we, if we speak and think like that, here's what we're affirming. We're saying, I sin because I'm a human. And the flip side of that is, if I do not sin, I'm something other than a human. Superhuman, maybe. Okay. So here's the point that I'm about to argue. Um, and, and answer the question, just Jesus' sinlessness make him more superhuman than actually human? No. Sinlessness is not superhuman. Sin is subhuman. Let me explain. Uh, there's nothing essential to humanness about sin. The reason you sin is not because you're a human, properly speaking. The reason you sin is because you are a sinner. All men who are in Adam are sinners by nature. Uh, but was Adam not a human until he sinned? Was Adam fully man before the fall? When we're freed from sin, oh, that day when freed from sinning, when we're glorified, will we cease to be fully human even while we're set free from sin? No. No. Uh, everything it means to be a man, Jesus became. And sin is not an essential part of what it means to be a man. So the sinlessness of Jesus does not mean he is less than what it means to be fully human. And actually, we should affirm the very opposite. The sinlessness of Jesus means, in part, that he is all that it means to be fully human, according to God's intention at creation. So let's say that um, I'm from, I don't know, Uganda, and we're talking about cars, and I come in, and you say, you start talking about Corvettes or some other nice car that people like. I'm not a, I don't know why I always use car illustrations, because part of it, I always say, I'm not a car guy, so, all right, uh, I say, what's a Corvette? So, oh, you've never seen a Corvette. My neighbor has one uh, in his garage. He was telling me just the other day, let's go look at it. So, we go, and we go in the garage, and it's in bad shape. It's on cinder blocks. There's a lot of cosmetic damage, hideous paint job, bumpers missing, um, mechanical Damage as well, obviously, can't run. Uh, so we leave, and I say, well, thanks, now I've seen a Corvette. And you say, no, you haven't. I say, well, yes, wasn't that a Corvette? You say, yes. I mean, technically it is. 
but you haven't seen a Corvette because you still haven't seen one as it's supposed to be. In its ideal form, as it was intended to be, you might even say you haven't seen it in all its glory. And so from this angle, coming off of our illustration, uh, with respect to God's design for humanity, what God intended man fully to be, truly in all his glory, we could say that Jesus has been the most fully human person to ever have lived. Uh, he is not less than fully human because he never sinned. You are less than fully human because you do. Jesus is a man, uh, par excellence, as they say. He is, he is the quintessential expression of humanity. Sin is dehumanizing. Sin makes man beastly. True mankind is created after the image of God. Sin distorts the image of God in man. So here's a wonder. As you grow in Christ-likeness, you're not only becoming more godly, more like God, you're also becoming more humanly, if I can put it that way. More like a human, as God intended man to be. And this should make perfect sense, because man was created in the image of God. Does that answer your question? Okay, amen. Um, related to this strand of thought, Here's another very important truth to affirm. Jesus did not live his human life through the power of his divine nature. Jesus fundamentally did not obey out of his own divine power. His righteous life was one predominantly as he lived as a man, making use of the same resources available to us, trusting in the Father, empowered by the Spirit. Frequently, what did that look like? devoting himself to the word of God and prayer. His life truly is an example to us. So you can't look at his sinless life and say, no fair, he's God. Uh, he didn't cheat, as it were, by relying on his own divine power, as one commentator noted. No, he, um, he did it the hard way, so to say. He did it the human way. In truth, both in his personal life and in a significant manner uh, in his ministry. So uh, he, he lived dependent on his father. Uh, and I just listed verses from John. John makes this point over and over. I, I'm going to read uh, these, these to you very quickly. Okay? For he whom, this is Jesus speaking, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the spirit without measure. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus answered, My father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only as he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Again, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. For the works that the Father has given to me to accomplish, to accomplish the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me, the Father has sent me. Jesus answers them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Jesus said to them, I do nothing on my own authority. But speak just as the Father taught me. I speak of what I have seen with my Father. 
Do you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth I heard from God? I have not spoken on my own authority. The Father who has sent me himself has given a commandment to me. What to say and what to speak. And I know his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father told me. Do you not believe I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Here's an interesting one. The Father who dwells in me does his works. The word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Um, in his high priestly prayer, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. I've given them the words that you gave me. I've given them your word. Jesus' life was lived in total dependence on the Father. He strove to do the works of the Father, to speak the words of his Father, to accomplish the will of his Father in the authority of his Father. According to how he understood, the Father was willing and working and speaking, even as the Father was at work in him. He also lived reliant on the Spirit um, in the incarnation. In, in, uh, I've only listed Luke here. Uh, Luke and Acts are... Uh, a two-part, single volume. <clears throat> um, in Luke 1.35, the incarnation, the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary. Um, and and he's, he's uh, filled with the Spirit from the womb. Uh, when, when he is about to start his ministry, remember in Luke 3, he comes to be baptized and the Spirit descends on him. Um, uh, as... as uh, after the Spirit descends on him in his baptism, it, the very next verse says, Jesus began his ministry. And then in Luke 4, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. He faced temptation, empowered by the Spirit, led by the Spirit. And then as he left the wilderness, being tempted by the devil to start his ministry, um, it says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And then... Uh, the, his first act, so to say, to commence his ministry. Remember, he, he uh, stood up in the temple and was given a scroll from Isaiah, and this is how he framed his ministry to come. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to re recover the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Uh, this is one of my favorite scenes in the Bible. He rolls up the scroll. He gives it to the attendant. He sits down. says, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. So I imagine there's just this silence. Everyone's looking at him after he reads this scroll. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Uh, in Acts 10, speaking summarily about... Um, about Jesus' ministry. Verse 38 says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So that last verse actually ties Jesus' relationship to the Father and the Spirit together. It said, God, the Father, anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, 
presumably because of the Holy Spirit that was given to him. And then it says, for God, the Father, was with him. How was it that God was working in him and through him? How was it that God was with him? I think generally we say uh, immediately through the spirit that he gave to him. That same thing is true of us. How is God with us? He's given us his spirit. How is it that Christ lives in us? Christ has sent his spirit to us. God was with Christ and worked in him through the Spirit. And Jesus depended on the Father and accomplished his will through reliance on the Spirit whom he sent. Um, So this pattern comes up throughout the Bible, that this is how God works. This is how God worked at creation. This is how God works in redemption, broadly speaking. And this is how God works in... uh, the, state, the, the pieces of redemption too, including the incarnation in ministry as a man of Christ. The Son accomplishes the will of the Father through the Spirit. Why does he always do it this way? Um, God does as God is. This is a reflection of who God is and, and how the persons of the Trinity relate to one another. Is beautiful. Um, so again, uh, to, to bring that kind of full circle, uh, how did Jesus live his obedient life and fulfill his ministry? Well, predominantly, it was by trusting in the Father, empowered by the Spirit. And as I said earlier, frequently that looked exactly like it would for us. There were, there were some distinct things, to be sure, especially uh, it was distinct um, in degree, different in degree from our experience, but not altogether different in kind from our experience. Devoting himself to the scriptures and prayer. And, and that applies to all that we're about to look at. How he grew in wisdom, how he resisted temptation, how he learned obedience, how he lived a life of faith and worship, how he persevered to the end. Trusting the Father, relying on the Spirit. It's exactly how we're called to live. Can I say it again? Jesus is a true example for us. And Jesus' righteousness is exactly what we need. It's exactly the kind of righteousness that God requires of us that we fail to secure on our own. But God can give it to us as a gift. When you put your faith in Jesus, when you put your faith in Jesus, you're united to him. And, and the two become one flesh. Analogous to a marriage where everything that is mine is yours and everything that is yours is mine. When you're united to Christ by faith, his righteousness, the exact righteousness that you're supposed to live, is credited to you. We're going to have to hurry. Increased in wisdom. Um, Luke 2. This is... Uh, the only record of, of something Jesus did in between his birth and his baptism, which was the kickstart of his ministry. Um, remember, uh, as uh, Jesus and his parents are returning to Galilee, um, 
It says in verse 40, the child grew, grew and became strong, so he's growing physically, according to his physical capacities as a man. Filled with wisdom, he's growing cognitively, according to his, his inner faculties as a man. The favor of God was upon him, and his parents um, get down the road and then realize that he's not with him. Maybe some of you have done that one of your kids if someone around you laughed it's because they've done it um, and then after three days they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers what was he doing listening to them asking them questions learning the word of god and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers and then the end of that um, of that story is this amazing, beautiful verse, Jesus increased in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and man. So again, through human faculties of knowing and thinking, Jesus grew in wisdom, uh, grew in his understanding of the truths of, of God's word. Um, surely that was the, the subject matter of the discussion with the teachers. Now Jesus also was a prophet, so he did receive uh, direct revelation from God as other prophets did before him um, but Jesus also gave himself to the word of God it stands to reason that if Jesus is a man he gained this wisdom and knowledge of God's word in the way that men do he studied it he delighted in it he meditated on it day and night and the spirit illumined the word uh, there's a prophecy about Messiah in Isaiah 11 it says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. You're familiar with that lingo about Jesus coming from the line of David. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Listen to what it says about this Messiah to come from the line of David. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Jesus said... Um, comparing himself to Solomon. Remember, Solomon was the wisest man who had ever lived. Uh, and and the queen, Jesus says this, the queen of the south came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. How great was this man's wisdom Solomon had. Jesus says, behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Someone wiser than the wisest man who ever lived had arrived. Jesus all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge belong to Christ. He, he increased in understanding. Also, uh, he, how did he resist temptation? So just as he grew in knowledge through human faculties of cognition, so too Jesus chose to obey through human faculties of volition. Uh, remember, it, uh, I referenced earlier Jesus being led by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by um, the devil. Luke, Luke's account frame puts that story in a place that makes you think of adam oh jesus obeyed where adam disobeyed uh, matthew puts that story in a position in his gospel to make you think oh jesus obeyed in the wilderness whereas israel disobeyed in the wilderness um, the devil tempted him well at first it says he fasted for 40 days okay fasting is an is an intensive manner of prayer um, and then when the devil tempted, he responded not with a direct word of revelation from God, but by quoting scripture. It is written, 
It is written. It is written. How did he resist temptation? Through prayer and the word of God. Depending on the Father, relying on the Spirit as a man. Uh, D.A. Carson says this, Jesus therefore would not use his powers to turn stones into bread for himself, which was one of the devil's temptations. That would have been to uh, vitiate, to ruin or invalidate his identification with human beings and therefore to abandon his mission. For human beings do not have instant access to such solutions. His mission prohibited him from arrogating to himself the prerogatives rightly his. But if that mission required him to multiply loaves for the sake of 5,000, he did so in submission to his Father's will. Uh, sometimes people will ask, isn't it true that because Jesus is God, he couldn't have actually failed in temptation? I want to say yes. Okay. So if Jesus couldn't have fallen, how is his temptation genuine and real? That's a good question, isn't it? So here we must distinguish carefully here. The reason that he could not fail is different than the reason that he did not fail. So uh, Bruce Ware gives this illustration of a swimmer who's trying to swim across some large body of water. Um, I want to say the English Channel immediately, but uh, he's trying to swim across some large body of water, and there's a boat following the swimmer. So the swimmer can't fail. So if the swimmer gets... Uh, needs to, he can crawl in the boat. But let's say the swimmer actually makes it to the other side of this body of water. The reason that he could not fail is different than the reason that he did not fail. Can you say, well, you couldn't have drowned, so it's not actually a genuine accomplishment that you made it across this body of water. No. No, this swimmer made it to the other shore the hard way, the human way. So the reason he could not fail is not the same as the reason he did not fail. Jesus, even though he couldn't fail because he was God, beat the temptations not out of his own divine power, but as a man in every way like us. That's why he was tempted like us. James 1 says that God cannot be tempted with evil. How could Jesus be tempted with evil? Jesus took to himself a human nature. Um, I'd like to say more about that, but we don't have time. <clears throat> Check that. I will say something else about this. Uh, c sometimes we, we think about, oh, well, Jesus didn't sin even though Jesus was tempted like us. And so, therefore... Um, we piddle around with temptation and say, well, you have to distinguish between temptation and sin because Jesus was tempted, but he didn't sin. So just because I'm experiencing this temptation and I'm piddling around with it in my heart, if I don't act on the temptation, then I'm not in sin. James 1 says that you're led away by temptation out of your own evil desire. When you sin in response to temptation, it's not at the moment when you start acting as a result of that temptation. It's at the moment when you, when you start to desire that evil that's contrary to God's will. Think about how thorough Jesus' resistance of temptation was. Never once on the level of desire 
was his heart inclined toward doing something contrary to his father's will. So if you will be like Jesus, when you experience temptation and you realize that your, your heart, there's something in your heart that is attracted to that, repent of that, of sin. Because realize that Jesus never, the, the, the temptation never found a landing pad on his heart. Not just a launching off pad in his heart, but the temptation never found a landing pad on his heart on the level of desire. Repent of evil desires in response to sin. Um, don't, don't think that you're obeying just because you're not acting in response. God weighs the heart. Wow. And, and then the other side of that, how, how uh, deep and thorough uh, was, was Jesus' obedience in response to temptation. Okay. I didn't want to do that because that would take a lot of time, and it did take a lot of time. <clears throat> uh, we've, already, we've already talked about this. Jesus lived a life of prayer. Jesus worshipped in response to one of the temptations um, that the devil gave. He said, uh, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. In Hebrews 2, that passage where it talks about how he was made like us in every respect, he says, um, the, the son says, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. I heard someone say a couple of weekends ago that Jesus was the greatest believer who ever lived. Yes. Uh, he is both the supreme example of faith as a man and the object of our faith as God. So we, we seek to put all our trust in him, even as we seek to trust in the way that he trusted. Jesus is glorious, the God-man. He learned obedience, Hebrews 5 tells us. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Learning obedience doesn't mean moving from a state of disobedience to more full obedience. Learning obedience means he moved into greater and greater degrees of obedience. So Jesus submitting to his parents as a child and going to the cross, both uh, were examples of full obedience. But the latter was exceedingly more difficult. He learned to obey in increasingly difficult circumstances. The obedience became more and more costly. So he incrementally learned to submit uh, through his human volition to the Father as the stakes grew higher and higher and higher. And the climax of that, of course, is in the Garden of Gethsemane when the obedience required directly ahead of him was so costly. Uh, Hebrews 5, looking back on Gethsemane, says Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And remember the gospels say it was, it was like he was sweating drops of blood. So intense was the obedience required of him. And yet he said, not my will, but thine. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Uh, Owen says this, it is true that the Lord Jesus Christ in the whole course of his life yielded obedience unto God. But now he came to the great trial of it, and with respect to the special command of the Father to lay down his life, 
and to make his soul an offering for sin, this was the highest act of obedience to God that ever was, forever shall be, to all eternity. Finally, he persevered to the end in faith, trusting the Father, relying on the Spirit. Um, Hebrews 9 says he offered himself to God, speaking of the cross, through the eternal Spirit. Um, Hebrews 12. Why don't you turn there? We'll, we'll read this and then we'll end. So Hebrews 12 it follow, is on the heels of Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 uh, is introduced by this verse at the end of Hebrews 10 that says, Hang on. Don't, don't leave Jesus. Keep persevering in the faith. Because those who persevere to the end will, will inherit the promises. And then they give examples of of men through history, through salvation history, who have done this, have persevered to the end in faith. And then the culminating uh, example is Jesus himself in Hebrews 12. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that? Looking to Jesus because he did that. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, it is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Why should you consider Jesus in his struggle against sin? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, so that you too will persevere. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Again, he became obedient to the point of death. Perseverance of the saints, the supreme example of it. Let's pray. God, I pray you would make us like your son. And I pray that you would do so... Um, through the power of your grace that's available to us because of your Son. God, we praise you. And we praise the Son, Jesus, our Savior. We praise the Spirit, uh, God, the Spirit, who worked in the Son during his life as a man. God, I pray you would fill us with wonder, with worship, with awe, with love uh, for you. We pray all these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.